We'll be uh, reading Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen to these words of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we do um, turn to look at Psalm 130 together. Let's Let's start with prayer for God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and we thank you for how you so clearly show us that hope in your word. As we prepare to hear from you in Psalm 130, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts to remind us of the hope that we have, the great blessings that you have given us, in salvation. Lord, we pray for our hearts to be soft to hear your word, for your spirit, your powerful Holy Spirit, to be at work to mold and to shape us right now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our sermon is coming from Psalm 130. If you would turn to Psalm 130. As you're turning there, let me just explain what we're doing. As you know, last week we finished up our sermon series in Luke 9. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll be starting a series in Colossians. So you can look forward to that. But I always love reading and preaching through the Psalms, so I thought I'd take advantage of a short break to be able to turn back to the Psalter and to look specifically at Psalm 130 together this morning. So let's listen to God's Word here. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel 
from all his iniquities. One thing that I've always found helpful as I, as I look at a psalm is to try to think what, what is one word or one phrase that would summarize this psalm. As I looked at Psalm 130 this week, the one word that kept coming back to my mind was hope. This is the one word, hope, that summarizes this psalm. This psalm really is a call to hope. It is a call for believers to hope in the Lord. And the main idea of this psalm is that Christians can hope in God's help because we have God's salvation. So we as believers, we as Christians, can hope in God's help because we already have God's salvation. Now there are kind of four basic points in this passage. Two verses each as we go. First we see that Christian hope causes us to cry out for God's help. We see that in verses 1 through 2. Then we see that Christian hope flows from God's forgiveness, verses 3 to 4. Then we see that Christian hope enables us to wait for God in 5 to 6. We see that Christian hope finally is grounded on God's salvation in verses 7 to 8. Now, I'll admit a structure like that probably sounds a little complicated, so maybe I can summarize it even more simply like this. Christian hope involves these four things. Our cry for help, God's forgiveness, our waiting, and God's salvation. Those are the four basic things that we're going to see in this psalm. Where the psalmist starts is actually showing us that Christian hope causes us to cry out for God's help. That's what we see in verses 1 through 2. The psalmist begins this psalm in the depths. That's how he describes his situation That kind of description of being in the depths, that is is a way of describing a period of great suffering. You know, in other Psalms, there are are many different things that fit. So, for instance, in Psalm 6, the psalmist is talking about a time of illness. He calls it the depths. Psalm 42, he's talking about his discouragement. He calls it the depths. In In Psalm 69, he's talking about persecution for the sake of God, and he calls that being in the depths. Now, as you read Psalm 130 here, it's not entirely clear what the specific suffering of this man is. And in one sense, it actually doesn't really matter what the specific situation he's in really is, because the point remains, here's the basic point, that we can always call out for God's help no matter the situation. And that's what comes out so clearly in these opening verses. The psalmist cries out to God for help in his suffering. Notice again how he starts. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Whatever the situation is, this is the psalmist's response to turn to God. These words here, these are not a half-hearted turning to God for help. Now, sometimes I think each one of us can be guilty of that. Sometimes we, we, we turn to God when we've kind of run out of other options, right? When we've exhausted everything else, well, then maybe I should pray. But sometimes even when we're praying, 
it's true for me and I think it's probably true for you, we still can find ourselves not really trusting that God will actually answer. We're not really trusting that God will help us in this particular situation. I want you to take encouragement for these words, though, because those are not the attitudes of the psalmist. In these words, we see that God is his one and only option for help. Maybe when I say that, that, he, that God is his one and only option for help, hear me clearly. God definitely has given us other means, right? Secondary means that we need to use. So for instance, if you're sick or in pain, you need to go and see the doctor. That's something that God has provided for you. But the, the psalmist's most basic response to his suffering, his most basic response is to pray to God for help. And notice also the intensity of his prayers. He is crying out. He is asking God to hear him. These are not some kind of gentle, one-off prayers. You look at other psalms, you see him weeping in his bed. You see him crying out with his entire soul during a time of suffering for God's help. Psalm 130, he is almost beating down the doors of heaven to have God hear him. But how do, his, how do his prayers hear? How do they show that he hopes in the Lord? Well, the psalmist's hope becomes clear as we look at the psalm as a whole. But the very fact that the psalmist turns to God for help already shows his hope. You know, there are so many things that we can turn to in times of suffering, either to fix the problem or sometimes also just to forget the problem. We all have ways of escaping the situation in front of us. But the psalmist's response is to ask God to hear him. He turns to the Lord. He turns to the Lord as the one who he knows loves him with an unchanging love. And he turns to the Lord as the one that he knows has power and a plan for him. Now, when you first read those words of calling out to God to hear him, they may sound desperate. They may sound like God has closed his ears to the psalmist. But it's striking that that's not true. The the psalmist, as we'll see as we go, the psalmist knows God is listening. And as he calls, as he calls, he is just asking God to hear him. He is not asking for God to do specific things. Right here, we also see the psalmist's hope because he leaves his prayer in the hands of God. He leaves it up to God to answer him in the way that God thinks best. That, too, is showing his hope and his trust. So then these first two verses again are showing that our Christian hope leads or causes us to cry out to God for help. But in verses 3 to 4, we see that Christian hope flows from God's forgiveness. It might initially be hard to follow what the psalmist is doing here, because he's moving from that cry to help in verses 1 to 2 to a a reflection on God's forgiveness in verses 3 to 4. And it can feel maybe like an abrupt shift in topic, like how did he get from one to the next? But actually, we'll see this is not an abrupt shift at all. Because God's forgiveness and our hope are intimately, deeply connected. As we begin to see clearly in these two verses, 
our hope actually flows directly from God's forgiveness. But he doesn't get to forgiveness first. He actually gets to God's holiness. That's what he starts to look at in verse 3. It's really a reflection on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. He says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's saying, if the Lord noted down each one of our sins, and then he chose to judge us, to act on that right now, there is not a single person here in this room or a single person in this world who would be able to stand up to God's judgment. Each one of us would be condemned because each one of us has sinned. You know the words of Paul, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is almost the same point as what the psalmist is saying here. And let that truth sink in because God is is a holy and just God, because that's who he is, he has every right, every right to condemn us in our sin. But we got to move to verse 4, because this is not the full picture. We see God's justice, we see God's holiness, but then listen to these words, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This has to be, at least for me, this has to be one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. We stand condemned, but, but that's not it. But there is forgiveness with God. You know what the psalmist just said in these two verses? This is the gospel. This is the gospel that with God and with God alone, there is forgiveness for each and every one of our sins in Jesus Christ. And God freely offers forgiveness to each and every person who turns to him in repentance and faith. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what the psalmist knows and stakes his life on. It's true that he doesn't understand the gospel as well as we do now, right? He lived so many years before Christ. But even then, he knew God He knew God's character, and he knew the promise of the coming Savior. And he had all those shadows in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. And if he could have so much hope, based on that little knowledge, how much more hope can we have when now we know God's free, full forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Now we can say, for God did so love the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We can take hope from the forgiveness of God. But God's free forgiveness does not just lead to our hope. It actually leads directly to a fear of God. Did you notice that? This is what he says, But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. You might think that those two words shouldn't go in the same sentence, right? Forgiveness and fear. They shouldn't be mentioned together. But let's talk about fear for a minute, and I think that will help. When we talk about fear, especially how the Bible uses it, there's two main kinds of fear. One is fear when we are scared of something. When we're scared, when we're afraid. 
But the Bible has another use of fear, and that's the one that the psalmist means. That fear means when we respect something, when we are in awe of something. And that's what the psalmist means. He means that God's forgiveness leads us to a right fear of God, a respect, an awe, a desire to serve Him. That is where God's forgiveness takes us. You know, we can be in fear of God as we think about God's forgiveness of us. Are you and am I in awe because God would actually even save anyone? Do you see that kind of awe? And not just anyone. Am I in awe that God chose to save me of all people? Am I also in awe of his power to do this? And is this fear, this respect, this awe, is it driving me to serve God faithfully? That's the goal of God's forgiveness. Because both forgiveness and fear, a proper fear, mind you, but both forgiveness and fear are part of the gospel. You may, have, you may have kind of heard that phrase that we are saved to serve, right? That's a good way of describing the whole picture of the gospel. To take Psalm 130, we can say the same thing, that we are forgiven to fear. Right there you have a summary of the gospel. But how do these verses here, these verses focusing on God's forgiveness, how does God's forgiveness connect to the psalmist's cry for help. I hope you're starting to see the connection already, but let me make it more clear. The psalmist recognizes that his biggest problem is actually his sin, not the current circumstances. Whatever is happening to him now is not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is his sin. And the psalmist knows that God has forgiven him in his sins. So now... Because he knows God has forgiven him, the psalmist can confidently call out to God because of who God is and what God has already done. You can think about it this way. If God has dealt with our biggest problem completely, won't he deal with everything else? Is there anything in life that he will not help us with if he's already met our deepest need of salvation? No, nothing. But actually, we can go further as we look, about, look at the forgiveness and fear of God. Because actually, the hope that the psalmist expresses in calling out to God is part of his fear of God. It's part of that honor and respect and awe because he is showing his complete reliance on God because of God's salvation. There is nowhere else for him to turn than the God who has saved him. So even as the psalmist sees his circumstances and he turns to God in hope because of God's salvation of him, there's still more coming. There is more to Christian hope than just these things because sometimes, many times, we have to wait for God. We probably all know what it feels like at times to wait for God. Well, so did the psalmist. And look at what he says here in verses 5 to 6. He's showing us that Christian hope enables us to wait for God. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. If you think back to verses 1 through 2, and just how serious 
the psalmist's circumstances really are, then these verses about waiting for God are even more extraordinary. Because here he shows great faith in a serious situation over a period of time. Now we'll look again at the psalmist's hope in a minute in this time of waiting. But first just think about the fact that he has to wait at all. Right? God does not immediately answer his cry in verses 1 through 2. He doesn't just immediately step in and fix the problem and it's all good. Have you ever found that true in your own life? Have you found times when your prayers, your very earnest prayers, aren't immediately answered by God? I think we all have, if we've been a Christian for any period of time. Waiting on God is part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian life just as much as salvation by grace or the need to obey. God calls us to wait on Him. But as we wait, look at what the psalmist believes. The psalmist clearly believes, and we can clearly believe as well, that while we are waiting, we are waiting for a loving, powerful God to act. Waiting for God does not mean that God has abandoned us. Doesn't mean that He's forgotten about us. Doesn't mean that He doesn't love us anymore. Actually, waiting on God is one of the ways that He's at work in our lives. One of the things that He gives us in these periods of waiting is trust and assurance. And we see that so clearly in the words of the psalmist. He has patient faith as He waits for God to respond. But it becomes clear that the psalmist's faith and assurance are firmly grounded. You know, we see this first, this this firm foundation of his faith by thinking about what he's just said. He has just finished reflecting on God's forgiveness and salvation. So the psalmist can cry out to God because of God's salvation and he can wait for God now for the exact same reason because he knows he has forgiveness in God. Both activities, crying out and then waiting, are grounded in the same truth that God has forgiven the psalmist from all of his sins. But the psalmist actually gets even more specific, looking at the foundation of his faith. He says, And in his word, I hope. See, the psalmist's hope comes from what God has said, his word. Now, the psalmist here could be talking about a specific promise in the Bible. We, We sang some of those same promises in that hymn, right? Some of the many beautiful promises in the Bible. But more likely, the psalmist is actually just talking about everything that God has said. You know, he's talking about what God has told his people about himself, his character. The psalmist is reflecting on all the things that God has done. So he looks back through his Bible. And then he's also looking at the many promises that God has made to his people. If the psalmist found such great hope in what God has said, we can have so much greater hope because we have so much more of God's word for us. Right here in this book, we have everything that we need. Everything that God will tell us is right here. Now, when when you've been in a time of trial, maybe a time of temptation, have you ever found God bringing specific passages to your mind? Maybe ones you memorized as a kid or maybe ones that you've 
read before, or maybe also at times like that, do you ever feel that 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 day's Bible reading was like exactly what you needed to get through the day? That's God at work. That is God giving us the hope to persevere and to wait for him through his word. What God does in those moments, that's an encouragement for us to be in the word now as God prepares us for times of waiting and trial in the future. But it's also encouragement for us to stay in the word during difficult times. The word is one of the main ways that God is going to give us the hope and the faith to wait for him. But the psalmist waits. He waits on God with great assurance. He actually gives us a picture of that great assurance that he knows God will answer him. And here's the picture. He says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. That picture there is of a watchman, and he's waiting for the sun to rise. Think about that watchman. He's eager. He's eager because the night is almost done. His work is almost done. But he's also waiting there with assurance because he knows that the sun is going to rise. The sun rises every morning. And that kind of eagerness and that kind of assurance is actually what the psalmist has as he waits for God. He has eagerness to see how God will act. And he has assurance that God will act. This kind of hope that's described here, this kind of assurance that allows us to wait in times of trial, this kind of assurance that's based on what God has said, this is not natural. This is not some kind of self-help, putting a positive spin on your circumstances or, or manifesting some reality. No, this is the work of God in His people. But this very hope, this work of God is not just for each one of us as individuals. In the final verses, the psalmist actually encourages each believer to find hope in God's bigger plan of salvation, which actually involves all of us together. That's what we see in verses 7 to 8. Fourth and finally, Christian hope is grounded in God's salvation. Now, you can see immediately in these verses that the, the, the psalmist's focus is broader now, right? He's been talking about I or my, and now he switches to talk about all believers. He says, oh, Israel. So the psalmist now is talking about the church together, the body of Christ. He's talking to a wider audience, but his message is essentially the same. Hope in God because of his salvation. He's already mentioned God's free forgiveness, but now he focuses in on God's character and on God's redemption. And behind both of those things, the idea behind those is God's covenant. Remember that special relationship that he's established with his people. God's relationship with us, that covenant, is based on the steadfast love that the psalmist highlights. Who God is, a God whose very character is to love his people with a love that will never let them go. That's part of the basis for Israel, for the church, to hope in the Lord. His love for them, his love for us now, will never change. And that steadfast love, 
that steadfast love is shown in God's plenteous redemption that he works. That redemption, that kind of salvation, that's pictured in the Old Testament, right, in the Exodus, when God frees his people from slavery in Egypt. But that Exodus, taking them out of Egypt to serve himself, that's, that's really only a picture. It's a picture of what Jesus has actually done, the redemption that God has worked through him, that, that deliverance from slavery to sin, that redemption, that deliverance from the devil, and that deliverance to serve God alone, all those are worked through Jesus' death on the cross for sin. The, the psalmist almost goes out of his way to emphasize just how great this kind of redemption worked by God truly is. He says it's a plentiful redemption. Not just a redemption, not even just a, a good redemption. No, a plentiful redemption. It covers all of us, all of his people, and it covers us completely. That each and every sin in its full extent and to its full depth is completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. The psalmist drives this point home in his final verse in verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's looking forward. He's pointing us forward to the work of Jesus Christ when that promised redemption is finally accomplished. The psalmist's words here, as as he pushes us, not just to see our salvation as individuals, but actually our redemption as the body of Christ, reminds me of what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives. Now listen carefully. As Christ loved the church, not just you, or you or you, but as Christ loved the church, us, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see that Christ's work is for the church as a whole, for all believers together? See, the reality is that God's work is for you, yes. But sometimes we miss that God's work is, is for us. So what that means is that this hope that each one of us has, this hope that is grounded in God's forgiveness and salvation, that is the exact same hope that we share together because God is at work in His body. God really is at work. Here's the practical payoff. Here's the practical payoff here. It's not just you who runs into times of difficulty and suffering. It's the church too. Every church is going to hit times of suffering, maybe even persecution. But you know what? All churches hit times of specific challenges. It can happen in a local church. I'm sure we've all seen it. It can be true of a denomination. Think wider or even churches in a given region. But whatever the case is, God calls us as the church to hope in him because of his character and his work that he has shown in salvation. We as a church together can cry out to God and wait for him to answer with the sure knowledge that he will act because he has saved us. Let me finish this morning with just a few more thoughts about application. Remember the basic point here is that God's help comes because of God's salvation. That First, that means that we need God to save us 
before we can expect him to help us. You know, many people, I'm sure you've met them, many people want God to help them. Many, many people. And that's a good desire. It's a good desire to ask for God's help. And God shows himself to be a faithful creator watching over the world he's made, showing grace to many. But do they want God to help them? Or do they want God to save them? See, that's the basic question here. Do we or do others want God's help on our terms? You know, sin is our biggest problem. Our sins are our biggest problem, and we need God to save us and bring us into his kingdom before we can actually expect God's help. But another just point of application, just take encouragement from this, that God's help reaches as far as his salvation reaches. And what I mean by that is that when God saves us, think about what he's doing. He saves every part of us, and he saves us for eternity. So that means that we can rest in God's help because every situation, no matter how small or how big, we can trust God because he will help us. That also means that we can trust God for his, for his help in every situation, no matter when it happens, because if Christ has died for us to meet with him in eternity, then he's covered every single thing that will happen along the way. So God's salvation for us and his help, they cover the same amount. Maybe just third and finally, just this basic call, the only hope we have in this world. Really, I want us to see it again. The only hope that we have in this world and the only hope that we have in the next is Jesus Christ. There are so many other things that we can turn to. So many other things that we can put in place of Jesus Christ, but they're never going to work. Whether it's your own works, trying harder, being better, turning to some other outside help, nothing will ever replace Jesus Christ. Do you see your need? Do you see your true need for Jesus Christ? Do you know others around you who are blind to Jesus Christ, blind to their own sin, blind to the help that they need from God. I cannot press this point home enough. Without Christ, we are without hope in this world. And if we're out without hope now, there is no hope for us in the world to come. I pray that we would all turn to Christ, young and old, turn back to Christ, find in Him the salvation that we need from our sins and find in Him every other thing that we need, both for this world, everything that will happen, and for the world to come when we meet with Him in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for what we see in this psalm, that our help truly is in you, not just the one who made the heavens and the earth, but the one who has died for us, the one who is at work in us, who is now our God, our Father, our Lord. Lord, we pray that we would seek your salvation, seek your forgiveness, keep coming back to you in our sin to be saved. And Lord, as we have this firm Anchor for our hope 
in your salvation, Lord, we pray that you would lead us in the days and months and years, both by ourselves and as a church, and lead us even into times of trial, even into times as of suffering. And Lord, when we get there, increase our hope. Bring us back to your word. Bring us back to your unchanging salvation and unchanging love. And Lord, we do know that one day our hope Our faith will be sight. And Lord, we do look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and we will now, we will then be made as as we ought to be, perfect and raised and looking like our Savior Jesus Christ. Give us hope, Lord, that that day is coming soon. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.